You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. standing up talking. I called Jess yesterday. I wasn't supposed to teach this morning, but I called Jess yesterday and I asked him, I said, how are you feeling about tomorrow? Because I know it was a busy week with him getting back from California. And he said, well, I'm not as prepared as I would like to be for tomorrow. And I said, well, we've, um, how would you like it if I were to take adult Sunday school class tomorrow? And he said, that would be fine. And I said, well, we, were, we ran out of time before we ran out of topics last week. So I would, we could pick up where we left off last week and continue with it this week. And then also he's preaching for me next Sunday since I'm going to be in Mexico, so he could use the extra time yesterday to prepare for that. So it worked out very good. So here I am again. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and your grace to us in, in bringing us all here today. We thank you for this weather and for this day, which you have made and gifted to us. We pray that we would use our time today wisely and this time wisely, and that you would, by your Spirit and through your Word and through our time here together, instruct us and teach us in your truth, we look to you for this, reason, for this reason and ask your blessing upon this time and committing it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we uh, last week we talked about the, well, two weeks ago, actually kind of what got, us, got me started with this whole series that I'm doing is two weeks ago we did the phenomenon of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. We looked at Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts 19, and we looked at the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Then last week we started with a Q&A intended to take us back into that subject and answer any questions that came up in the book of Acts, but we went far afield from that and talked about do babies go to heaven and what's heaven like and is there time in heaven and a whole bunch of other things. And last week we ran out of time before we ran out of questions. I think there was probably three or four people who would be were waiting to put their hands up with stuff. So we're going to continue that today and we're going to do what I typically do when I do adult Sunday school class, uh, last minute particularly, and that is a Q&A. So... If you have a question that was lingering after last week's Sunday school or the week before about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, now is the time to ask it. And if not, then we'll close in prayer. And <laughs> doesn't have to be about the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts then. That was all clear to everybody? Drew. Okay, good question. And this is, you asked me that after the, the class. I'm good, glad you brought that up. The question was, in Acts 2, it says that the apostles began speaking in tongues. And it uses the word glossa, which is the word from which we get our word glossary, and it means a tongue or a language. Every time the word tongues is used in the New Testament, whether it's in the book of Acts or in the book of 1 Corinthians, it always means a language, a known language, a human language, not an angelic language, not a special prayer language, but a human glossa or language. Uh, in the book of Acts chapter 2, it actually uses the word dialectos. The men said, we hear them speaking in our own dialect, not just our language, but our own dialect, with our accent and with our unique, our unique style of language from where we are from, Parthians and Medes and all of the, the languages that were listed there. So on, in Acts 2, the apostles spoke in known tongues or languages, but then when you get to Acts 10, and this is Drew's question, when you get to Acts 10 and 19, it says that they spoke in languages, but here's the question, when Peter and John, or when Peter in Acts 10 walks in and preaches to Cornelius, 
and Cornelius gets saved and he begins to speak in tongues, how did Peter know that it was tongues and not ecstatic babble? Or some other language, an angelic language or a prayer language. How did Peter know that Cornelius was speaking in a tongue? Now, if you just think about, if somebody were to walk in here and manifest that gift, the ability to speak in a language they have never learned, and the dialect of that language that they have never learned is a supernatural ability, there's two things that are implied. Number one is that the hearers would be able to recognize uh, that's a language. For instance, if, if somebody were to come in here and start speaking Spanish, we would recognize it as Spanish. The apostles obviously had the ability to hear that language and understand this is the exact same thing that the Spirit of God gave to us on the day of Pentecost, which is what Peter says in Acts 10 and 11. When he goes back to Jerusalem, this is the same thing that happened to us at the beginning. So he was able to discern that these were human languages and not prayer languages. And the question is, how did he do that? How did he know that? Is it not possible that Peter, being an apostle, or Paul, in Acts 19, being an apostle, would be able to see, and even it's possible by revelation of the Spirit of God, know that these guys were speaking in a language they had never learned? In Cornelius's case, I think it's possible, the text doesn't say this, but in Cornelius's case, I think it's arguable that Cornelius could have begun to speak fluent Hebrew or Aramaic, which he may not have known, and Peter would have heard that. And so here was a man who had been speaking Greek, or maybe stumbling through Aramaic to Peter through a translator or whatever as they're talking, and then all of a sudden Peter begins preaching and Cornelius believes, and he begins speaking fluently in a language that he's never learned. However it is that we, however it is that they knew that, Peter and Paul were able to see this is a language, it's not an ecstatic babble. Um, how do I know, how do we know from the text that it wasn't ecstatic babble? Because it uses the same word that it uses back in Acts chapter 2, where it's very clearly a human language, a human tongue. So one of the rules of interpretation is that when you have uh, two passages before you side by side by the same author in the same book, and he uses one word or phrase in one passage, and he uses the identical word or phrase in another passage, one of the rules of interpretation is you don't assign two totally different meanings to each of those words unless it is radically justified by the text, by the context. For instance, I've had people's take with uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and 1 Timothy chapter 3 where it says that an elder is not to be given to wine in 1 Timothy 3 or um, not, uh, wineless is the word, the Greek word, the English translation is escaping me, wineless in 1 Timothy 3. The same words used in 1 Timothy chapter 5 where Paul says take a little wine for your stomach's sake. And I've had some people argue Those two totally different meanings. In chapter 3, he means alcoholic wine. You should not drink that. And in Acts chapter 5, he just means grape juice. Well, how do you justify that? There's nothing in the text that suggests those two two radically different meanings for that word wineless or for the word wine. There's nothing in the context that suggests Paul's means two totally different things. So you can't just assign a meaning to a verb, a word, wherever it occurs. Same thing in the book of Acts. It's Gloss of chapter 2. It's Gloss of chapter 10. It's Gloss of chapter 19. It's the same thing. It's human languages all the way through the book of Acts. You can't say, well, it's human language in chapter 2, it's angelic language or prayer language in chapter 19. That's just not justified. Does that answer your question, Drew? Ray? What would mean by defense? The question is, when you're speaking with a charismatic believer, what would be my defense that the gifts of tongues are done away with today? I typically go back to, what is the purpose of tongues in the New Testament? And that's where you begin. Everywhere we read of tongues, it's a human language. And I've never seen a charismatic demonstrate this. I think it was 19, uh, 
couldn't have been 1930s because I'm trying to remember the year. I read the story. It's in John MacArthur's book, Charismatic Chaos. He tells the story of, of a large group of charismatic brothers from all over the world who came to Jerusalem for the purpose of celebrating the anniversary of Pentecost. And so they showed there up there during the, during that time and get together for a big worship service to celebrate Pentecost and its continuing manifestations today in the gift of tongues amongst charismatic brethren. And when all of these charismatic brethren from China and Germany and Japan and France and America and South Africa and Mexico, when they all descended upon Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost and the giving of the gift of tongues, guess what they had to have there? Translators. Translators. Why? Why do you need a translator if we all have the ability to speak in a human language? Well, their argument is that these are prayer languages, and they're not. Everywhere in the book of Acts, it's clear it's human languages. And 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, the idea is the same thing. And why were tongues given? Tongues were given as a sign to unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 14, I think it's verse 26. And Paul quotes, and I'm just giving you the argument that I would give, and I have given to people who try and argue that tongues is a prayer language. Paul gives the purpose of tongues in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, and he quotes Isaiah the prophet. Now, if you go back and you read Isaiah and Jeremiah, particularly those two prophets, you'll see in there where God says, I have spoken to you in your own tongue and your own language. Uh, let me, let's just go open your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 14, so you can see it yourself. 1 Corinthians 14, verse, it's not verse 26, verse 21. Paul says in verse 20, Brethren, don't be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it was written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, now here's Paul's conclusion from quoting Isaiah, so then, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Prophecy, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he'll fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Now, what I want you to focus in on is verse 21, which is a quote from the prophet Isaiah. I thought I had the cross-reference written in my notes, but I don't. Isaiah 28, verse 11. At some point, I do this in my Bible where I, I run across a, a verse, and then I write down in the context all the cross-references that aren't listed. So here's what Paul quotes in Isaiah 28, verse 11. Isaiah writes, Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. Now you could go to Isaiah 33, verse 19, where Isaiah says, You will no longer see a fierce people, a people of unintelligible speech which no one comprehends, of a stammering tongue which no one understands. And then there's a couple passages in Jeremiah, I think, where he does the same thing. And here's what the prophets were doing. Let me sum up what a prophet was saying. A prophet would speak to the nation of Israel in Hebrew. Repent. Repent. Here's your wickedness. And they would, like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Amos or any of the minor prophets, major prophets, always this prophetic declaration, repent and turn from your sins. Here's how you violated the law of God. Here's the judgment that's coming. And the people wouldn't listen. Nah, 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 nah. They wouldn't listen. Plug their ears. Didn't want to hear it. So finally a prophet would say, if you won't listen to me in your own language, 
I'll speak to you through a people who don't speak your language. And then you'll know that judgment has come because you're going to be walking in your own land and you're going to have hear foreigners speaking a foreign language in the land of promise. And to a Jew, that only meant one thing. Judgment. We've been invaded. The Assyrians have come in or the Babylonians have come in or the Medes have come in. The Philistines have come in. They dominate us. They're walking among our streets. They're ruling us. We are their servants. That was a sign of judgment to an Old Testament Jew. So the prophets would say, if you won't listen to us when we talk, God is going to speak to you through people whose tongues you do not understand. And that's going to be a sign to you of judgment that you've rebelled against God and that God has given you up. He has given over your land to foreign invaders and you're going to be oppressed by people as a judgment of God because you have not repented and turned from your sin. That's what the prophets meant by that. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, he quotes Isaiah and he says, Tongues, when a Jew heard foreign tongues spoken on their own soil, they thought of Isaiah 28, Isaiah 33, and a couple passages I didn't mark down in the book of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah says the same thing. They thought judgment. Judgment. So then go back to Acts chapter 2. All of these Jews standing in the day of Pentecost, celebrating one of their feasts, and these men stand up and they begin to do what? speak in a foreign language in the temple, in the land of Israel, and any Jew who heard that would have said what? <gasps> judgment. Judgment. They didn't, they didn't say, oh, this is an odd or queer thing. They must be praying through angelic voices. They didn't say that. That is why they said, men and brethren, what must we do to be saved? Because Peter stood up and he said, you crucified the Lord of glory. You handed him over to Pontius Pilate. You crucified him and God raised him up on the third day. And he indicted them for crucifying their Messiah, which was a sin. And Peter tied this to the book of Joel and the manifestation of the Spirit of God. And what the Jews understood by hearing foreign tongues was, we're being judged. And it wasn't because Peter was an articulate spokesman or a great preacher that 3,000 people got saved that day. It was because they understood exactly what was going on. This was a foreshadowing of judgment. And they knew they were guilty. And they knew that they were going to be judged. So that's the purpose of tongues. What are tongues for? Tongues are a sign, Paul says. Not to believers, but to unbelievers. And that's how it functioned on the day of Pentecost. It was a sign to unbelievers of the judgment that was to come. And Paul quotes Isaiah, where Isaiah says, I'm going to judge you, and I'm going to do it by speaking to you through a foreign people whose mouth and tongue you're not going to understand. Does that make sense? Ray. That's why I stay away from 1 Corinthians 13. Right. The... 1 Corinthians 13, and Ray is referring to the end of that passage where Paul says tongues will be done away with and prophecy will cease, but these three abide. And uh, now we see through a glass dimly, but then face to face. And when the perfect comes, then these things will be done away with. I believe that that's speaking in the New Testament canon as well. I believe that that's what Paul is talking about. Right now, there are gifts which are in operation, which are incomplete. They're, they're, they're crippled gifts. They're the crutches. These are getting us through, but there is a perfect revelation coming where we're not going to need prophets like Agabus. We're not going to need tongues. We're not going to need these sign gifts because we're going to have something that is a more sure word of testimony. And when we get that, Paul is saying, then these other incomplete and inferior things will be done away. They'll fade out. They will be, they'll be put aside and put under, destroyed by that which comes which is perfect. And I don't believe that that's heaven. And I don't believe it's the coming of Christ. I believe it's the perfect word of God which has been given once for all to the saints. That's 1 Corinthians 13. So, Brian. Well, they, tr- they try and make it to the coming of Christ and then you've got to start getting into, and I've, I've tried to go through this, you start getting into, well, what's the, what's the Greek tense of uh, 
the Greek word almost had it there for a second, but which means to be done away with or to destroy it. And, and there's a there's a whole Greek grammar argument that's connected to 1 Corinthians 13. And in discussing it with charismatics, I just I think it's better to say what was the nature of tongues and what was the purpose of tongues. The tongues was not it wasn't for it wasn't it's not an evidence of the Spirit of God. You don't get that from 1 Corinthians um, 12, 13, and 14. It's not a prayer language. Paul does away with that idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. It's not a prayer language. It's not a heavenly language. So what was it? It was human languages. Everywhere you see it used in human languages. And as we pointed out two weeks ago, it was rare. You know, you can't, you don't flip through the New Testament and see tongues on every page. It's rare. When do you see tongues? You see tongues explicitly mentioned three times over 30 years in the book of Acts. Three times. All three of these times, everybody that surrounded the event said, Oh, that is unique. Acts 2 and then Acts 10. Peter stepped back and he said, That, what Cornelius just did, same thing as on the day of Pentecost. That was a unique thing. Acts 19, another unique thing. Something queer, something unique was going on there. Something odd was happening. You just don't see it on every page. You, you don't, you see it in 1 Corinthians, three chapters, but there Paul's chastising the Corinthians for their abuse of tongues. You don't read about it in 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, any of the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy or Titus. You don't, Hebrews, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, James, none of John's epistles, book of Revelation. You don't read about that gift anywhere else in the New Testament. Three times in the book of Acts and one book where the apostle takes them to task because they had abused the gift. Does that answer your question, Ray? Any other questions about that? And that's not to say that we should be, um, and I'm not, that we should be uh, uncharitable or unloving toward charismatic brethren. Because I've got friends that are charismatic friends that believe that they pray in a heavenly prayer language. And these are my brothers in Christ, and I have no problem fellowshipping with them. And, and we just disagree on this issue. And we can have an intelligent, civil conversation about it without, we can discuss it without violently disagreeing. So I would, in saying that, I would encourage you to do the same thing. Next question? Yes? What are my thoughts on the two different types of judgment? Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, and let's just read it, Do not judge so that you will not be judged, for in the way you judge you will be judged, and by your standard of measure it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is there dealing with the issue of church discipline, and he says, beginning in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Now, just the reference there to immoral people requires actually that you're able to judge between what's moral and immoral, right? Otherwise, if you're not able to do that, you're not even going to be able to follow Paul's commandment in 1 Corinthians 5.9. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So you can keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 5 if you want, but Matthew 7, let's, let's begin there. 
What are my thoughts on the subject of judgment? This is talking about two, I believe, radically different types of judgment and contexts. So it's you can't try and conflate them as if you're trying to harmonize two different things. This is apples and oranges. Let's deal with the apples in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, the type of judgment that's being described there is a hypocritical judgment, which Jesus goes on to describe. You have a speck in your eye, or a log in your eye, and you're trying to take a speck out of your brother's eye. And Jesus doesn't say, don't worry about the speck, and don't worry about the law and uh, log, and don't worry about any of that. He says, first you need to do what? Remove the log out of your own eye, then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. So he's not, he's not there prohibiting any kind of moral judgment or any kind of judgment whatsoever. What he is prohibiting is a self-righteous judgment where I'm guilty of one sin and I am in a position of judging and condemning and criticizing another individual who's involved with the same sin. That's the hypocrisy that Jesus is getting at. So he says not don't judge and don't ever make any type of moral judgment, but instead he says you need to deal with your own sin then you can clearly deal with somebody else's sin. And that's what you have going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You need to deal with the sin amongst yourselves as a body. And yes, it is the leaders, but it's also the entire church as a whole. It's not just that the leaders in 1 Corinthians 5, it's not just the leaders that are being addressed in 1 Corinthians 5. It's the whole body. It's not just the leaders who are not supposed to have fellowship with a so-called brother who is living in immorality. It's the whole church that was not supposed to have fellowship with them. It's the whole body that is to have nothing to do with that unclean person. So it's two different types of judgment. The one in Matthew 7 is a hypocritical judgment, and we ought to say, you should not judge. You should not. But the idea is not not making a moral judgment, because Jesus did that. The apostles did that. He's not saying you should never try and make a moral determination. This is immoral, and this is not, and this is right, and this is wrong. He calls us to do that. In fact, he calls us later on in that chapter, I think it is, to be able to discern the difference between good fruit and bad fruit. Doesn't that require the ability to judge? To make a judgment call? So liberals will typically say, oh, judge not that you shall not be judged. You know, that's the one verse that they quote. You hear these, these liberals who claim to be Christians who say, the Bible says thou shalt not judge. And from the way they quote that, you'd think that's all the Bible ever said. That's the only inspired scripture in the red letters. Judge not that you be not judged. But in context, all Jesus is saying is, you don't judge hypocritically. You don't condemn other people when you're involved with the, when you're doing the same thing. Does that make sense? Right, it wouldn't fit with Matthew 18, which gives us, which outlines for us steps of church discipline. It connects with 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So as Christians, we have to judge. We have to test every prophecy, hold fast to that which is true. We have to be able to discern the difference between truth and error. We have to discern between the spirit of God and the spirit of Antichrist. We have to be able to discern the difference between a false prophet and a true teacher. We have to be able to discern the difference between moral and immoral behavior and light and darkness and the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. There's a ton of stuff that we're told in Scripture that we are to judge. But one thing we're not to do is to judge with hypocritical, self-righteous judgment and spirit, which is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. And that's whom Jesus is addressing in the Sermon on the Mount. That's the part of the intended audience is these Pharisees who, who made long pretense of their prayers and gave so that everybody would notice and they had all the phylacteries and the long uh, dangling robes and all of that stuff. And he's looking at the Pharisees saying, these guys are self-righteous, thinking they're righteous in their own deeds, 
they weed out the gnat and they swallow the camel. These are guys who have made the word of God null by their own tradition. And from a seat and a position of self-righteous, self-aggrandized superiority, they look down on the other people as if you don't, you're not measuring up because the Pharisees thought that they were pleasing God in all of their conduct. And Jesus is saying, these guys have logs in their eyes. And they can't even see past the log in their own eye. So that's the idea. Another one? Do you have one, Mel? Okay, <laughs> just enjoying it. Debbie, oh, sorry, Ray. You, you've already talked. No, Ray's talked all too much, and if you let him go. Luke chapter 1, the prophet in the temple. Was Zechariah to lose his speech or his hearing as well? Oh, right. Verse 62, and they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him to be called. That's a good question. I never thought of that. 62, chapter 1, verse 62. Because of Zachariah's unbelief, he was not able to speak until the baby was born. And then they were debating what to call the baby. And it says that his friends made signs to him as to what to call the baby. You'd think if he was only mute and not deaf, that he would have just, they would have asked him, Zachariah, write down on a piece of paper what you want the boy to be called. They could have done that. Yeah, right. <laughs> As if, uh, right. <laughs> As if sign language. I don't know, maybe it's, uh, I, I guess the assumption would be from that text that he was probably unable to hear as well. Deaf and mute. Yeah, Janice. Okay, good question. When you, Because we're praying to a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when we pray, who should we be addressing is your question. And is it appropriate to pray to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit? And I think that the the normal biblical pattern in the New Testament seems to be to speak to the Father. Um, really, all three persons of the Trinity are involved with our prayer life because the Father hears the prayer, the Spirit helps us to pray as we ought when we don't know what to pray, and the Bible says that the, the, uh, the Son of God, Jesus, is a mediator between us and the Father. He stands between us and heaven to make our petitions presentable to the Father. And I, and I heard a good illustration, and let me give you this illustration. It's kind of like a little boy who goes out in the backyard and he wants to pick a bunch of flowers for his mother. So he gathers up some some skunkweed and some dandelions and some tansy and a rose out of the garden and a couple other little uh, baby's breath and something else, puts them all together in a big handle and a big in his hand and he's on his way in house to give this to his mother because he just wants to present this to his mother. He thinks he's just going to be, this is going to be great. And his father sees him in the garage on his way into the house and the father says, hold on a second, what do you got there? Well, I picked these for mom and I want to present them to, to them. Here's what Jesus does, I think, to our prayers. He takes that bundle of skunkweed with the rose in it, that most of which would be offensive to the recipient. And obviously this analogy limps a little bit because every analogy limps. Because my wife would receive a handful of skunkweed from her child and, and think it was the best thing on the face of the earth. She wouldn't want skunkweed from me. So, But what the father does is he takes that handful of weeds with the few precious flowers in it and he pulls out all of the garbage which is offensive and appropriate and he hands the rest of it to the father. And that is what mediation does. That's what the Son of God does for us and to our prayers. He stands in our stead because we can't stand in our own stead. He stands in our stead and he intercedes for us so that we're praying in Jesus' name, in his stead. We have access by his blood, everything about our presentation and access to the Father 
comes as a result of what Christ did. And the Spirit helps us to pray, and we address our petitions to the Father. Now, having said that, I believe also that it is completely appropriate for us to pray to the Son and to the Spirit of God. Oftentimes, when I pray before preparing a message or preaching a message, I will address certain specific petitions to the Spirit of God, because I believe that it's the Spirit of God who is at work here through any teaching that anybody does, whether it's me or Jess or Dave or any of the Sunday school teachers. That's the Spirit of God who is involved in that. So I think it's appropriate to pray certain prayers to the Father, to the Son, and to the Spirit of God. I think it's appropriate to thank the Father for sending His Son, to thank Jesus for coming and dying for me, and to thank the Spirit of God for calling me to Him. So there are certain things that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit do, and I think it's appropriate to address prayers to all three. But I I believe that the New Testament pattern seems to be we pray to the Father in the name of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? that help? It really requires that when we pray, we pray thinkingly. That we, we're putting our mind into what we're praying rather than just rambling. And this is, I shared this with you before, that's my biggest struggle in prayer. I start praying and before long, my mind is just a wandering. I hate my mind. It wanders so fast. I mean, I can start on one subject and, I mean, I just, you know, reining it in constantly. That's the way my head goes. But it, the part of the discipline of prayer and the struggle for me in prayer is keeping my mind focused long enough to say a whole intelligible sentence from start to finish. That's a struggle for me. And it takes discipline in my mind to think through what I'm asking. And I think it is better for us to pray purposefully and specifically and intelligently and make that prayer short than it is to pray a long time about something and, and ramble on about a whole bunch of different things, which is most of which is unintelligible and lacks purpose and clarity and thought put into it. What's that? It could be back to prayer languages, yeah. Who knows, maybe my, my heavenly prayer language is far more purposeful and direct than my earthly. No. Now, where do you get the power to talk to God in prayer? I think it boils down to the same way that we get the power to serve God in any capacity or to share our faith or to do anything that He calls us to do, to love our wives or to submit to our husbands or to love our children or to raise our children or to love one another admonish one another. Any command that we're given in Scripture, I think that that power comes from Him. But it, it goes back to this two-sided coin that we've talked to in, in other contexts. We work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, but we know that God is at work in us. And it's the same thing with prayer. We, we purpose and we intend and we do pray, but we also know that everything, every time that we pray, if anything is pleasing to Him or if I have the ability to do it, it's because He gives me the grace to do that. He's granted me the access. He's filled me the Spirit. He's provided a mediator. He's done everything and laid it out, so now I have to pray. But when I pray, I pray knowing that He's the one who is at work in me, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Right. The Spirit of God is involved in that. Yeah. Yeah, well, Paul says in our weaknesses. I mean, I think Paul was even a man who, even though he was a, a radically better prayer warrior than I probably will ever be, as far as what we read in Scripture about his prayer life and his prayers, I think Paul understood the same frustration that most believers have. It seems that there are people who, and at Bible college we had a, a little old lady, her name was Miss Dixon, and that lady prayed for me from the time that I showed up to school until the day she died. I know she did because she prayed for every alumni of that school by name. We're talking about thousands of people. And missionaries all over the world, I know she did. She, People told me she had a prayer journal. She was a single woman. She had never married. 
She lived by herself in a house, and she ministered to college students, and she prayed for people constantly. There are the Miss Dixons of the world. That prayer for them, and you could sit down and listen to Miss Dixon pray, because she would have you over for biscuits and tea, and you'd sit down and have biscuits and tea with her, and she would say, let's open our time in prayer. And when she prayed, you felt like you were stepping into the presence of God. And then when she closed in prayer, you felt like you had just walked through a gate of glory on your way out of her house. It was unbelievable. This woman spent time in God's presence, and to be in her presence and to listen to her talk in God's presence was something that you, I just, I've never experienced that around anybody else but Miss Dixon. It was, it was incredible. And there are Miss Dixons of the world, and then there are Jim Osmonds, for whom prayer is not the most natural thing in the world. It's not like breathing for me. It takes effort. It takes discipline. It takes focus. It takes purposeful, intelligent, difficult, um, discipline to do it. It's not easy. I don't just start talking and it's in the presence of God. I start talking and get to the end and I think, oh, what a, that I will ever be, that I am ever accepted in the presence of God. It's only in the righteousness of Christ. Because I am an utter, utter failure in that regard. I know I am, but it's something I strive for. And I'll never be like Miss Dixon and I'll never be like Paul. But I hope someday I'll, I, I know I'm better than I used to be and I know things are better than they used to be, but it's, it's a continual work. It's not easy. It's not natural. Now getting, now sitting down and opening up my Bible and studying and reading and preparing a message, that flows naturally. That flows as naturally for me as praying did for Miss Dixon. So, uh, Diane. Yeah. <laughs> James 5.16, confessing your sins to one another, how far do you go with that? I'm glad you didn't ask me about the sin which leads to death and what the anointing of oil means in James 5. Let's deal with the issue of um, of confessing your sins to one another. In the context, and you see if you look back to verse uh, 13, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. If anyone among you is sick, then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So the confessing of sins is connected with this situation of somebody who is sick, and their sickness is the result of or the chastisement for a specific sin. And that's why he says, if... If in calling the elders and anointing with oil, and I think the assumption of the text is and, and the role of the elders is to sit down with somebody who is sick and saying, do you think that this is chastisement for any sin in your life? And that's where the person who is sick would say, you know, I am sick, but look, I've been involved in this and I've done this and I've, and I've come to confess this and here's where I've rebelled against the Lord. And he confesses his sins and the elders apply appropriate medicinal treatment if necessary, which is what the oil is, and it's medicinal. It's not a holy anointing oil like the Old Testament. And if this sickness is because of his sin, and he confesses his sin, then God will raise him up. But not all sickness is as the result of sin. Some sickness is the result of being sick. And so you're sick because you're sick, and it has nothing to do with sin. But if the sickness is the chastening hand of God, and if that sickness is because somebody is living in perpetual, wanton, unrepentant sin, then when they confess that sin to the elders and to one another, and they make restitution where appropriate, then God will raise that person up. So now the question is, how wide should this confession of sin be? Um, should we get up and all of us confess that we broke the speed limit on the way to church this morning? 
or whatever other small or big sin we committed before we got here. I think that the the sin that is confessed needs to be it needs to be confessed as large and wide as it was originally sinned. Now, if I sin against Ray, I need to confess that to Ray. If my sin against Ray has an effect upon one or two other people, then I need to acknowledge the one or two other people. But the confession, I think, needs to go as broad and as wide as the sin permeates. And I think it's wise and judicious to keep it at, at that level. I think that Scripture dictates and prudence would require that we not simply slander each other by confessing all of our sins. And I mean, can you imagine what a Sunday morning service would be if we did that? It would just be the most depressing, the most... Um, and when would you stop? Right? I mean, somebody on this side confesses their sin, and somebody over here is thinking to themselves, what a horrible, wicked... Oh, now i got a sin, i got to confess. And then they confess, and then the guy in the middle says, that guy over there, boy, he's not as righteous as me. Oh, now i got a sin, i got to confess. And it would just, you'd nev- it would never end. So you, you can't... I think in the context, what is implied there is that this has to do with the sickness and the illness that James is addressing, and that the confession should be as broad and wide as is necessary to the people that were affected by that sin. Well, the Catholics would point to this and say, this is proof that we should be confessing our sins to a priest. But that's not what's being talked about there. It's not a confessional. What's that? Then be anointed by holy water and oil, right? All right, any other quick questions before we close? Our time is up. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had that we can look to your word for answers and we thank you that we've been able to be here and enjoy fellowship with one another and to be able to bask in the glory of Christ and in his work for us. We thank you that you do intercede for us and that you pray for us and with us according to our weaknesses. And we do ask God that you would strengthen each of us in our faith and our walk with you and in our prayer lives that what we do and what we say might be honoring to you. Give us the strength that we need to please you in word and in deed, that Christ might be glorified. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, Thank you for listening.